All right, everyone, welcome back to Womance's public access read-along of Jane Eyre. I'm your odd chapter reader, Morgan. And I'm your even chapter reader, Isabeau. And we are at present on chapter 31, um, which is, that's right, an odd number chapter. (laughs) And so I, Morgan, will be reading this week, which means you, Isabeau, will be recapping what happened in chapter 30. What happened in chapter 30 is that the beautiful River sisters had to go back to being governesses, which made Jane, who's basically obsessed with them, but especially Diana, very sad. And then Mr. Sinjin offered our dear Jane the exact same amount of money that Mr. Rochester offered her <laughs> to be a governess. Uh, and now she's going to teach in a one-room schoolhouse and be the school marm of this little town. We also learned a lot about Sinjin. He has lots of ambitions. He seems to be on the cusp of self-flagellation, like very religious, very ambitious, feels very cloistered, uh, kind of feels a little Rochester-y, but like with not a fun edge. (laughs) He doesn't have that touch of the whimsical about him. True. Super true. So we end chapter 30. The sisters are gone, but dear Jane has a new position to walk into. All right. Let us begin chapter 31. My home then, when I at last find a home, is a cottage. A little room with whitewashed walls and a sanded floor, containing four painted chairs and a table, a clock, a cupboard, with two or three plates and dishes, and a set of tea things in Delf. <laughs> Delf is glazed earthenware from Delft in Holland, so okay, not a sexy dad. <laughs> Above, a chamber of the same dimensions as the kitchen with a deal bedstead and chest of drawers, small yet too large to be filled with my scanty wardrobe, though the kindness of of my gentle and generous friends has increased that by modest stock of such things as are necessary. The present tense is goofing me up in a way that I did expect, but is still annoying to (laughs) experience. It is evening, I have dismissed, with the fee of an orange, the little orphan who serves me as a handmaid. I am sitting alone on the hearth. This morning the village school opened. I had 20 scholars, but three of the number can read, none write or cipher. Several knit and a few sew a little more. They speak with the broadest accent of the district. At present, they and I have difficulty in understanding each other's language. Some of them are unmannered, rough, intractable, as well as ignorant. But others are docile, have a wish to learn, and evince a disposition that pleases me. I must not forget that these coarsely clad little peasants are of flesh and blood, (laughs) as good as the scions of gentlest genealogy, and that the germs of native excellence, refinement, intelligence, kind feeling, are as likely to exist in their hearts as in those of the best-born. My duty will be to develop these germs. Surely I shall find some happiness in discharging that office. Much enjoyment I do not expect in the life opening before me. Yet it will, doubtless, if I regulate my mind and exert my powers as I ought, yield me enough to live on from day to day. How kind of her. 
Such a big heart, this one. This is one of those aspects of, of white feminism. And it's so mm. nice that we have like a pithy little term that kind of encapsulates all of these ideas of people like imagine like feigning to care about others and see them as human beings um, and definitely wanting credit for it. And oh, like, yeah. These coarsely clad little pleasants, peasants are indeed actually humans. <laughs> yeah. And I can barely understand their accents, but like they're good people, I'm sure. And like all the while, while she's describing them as human like her, she's managing to other them. Like I can't, yes. I can hardly understand what they're saying. And it's so weird because throughout this text, she has been like the small, poor, rough one. Um. And the fact that she has so little empathy, uh, maybe she deserves Rochester. <laughs> I think we're coming around to the conclusion that they do indeed deserve each other, which is a weird conclusion to come to. Well, let's get, let's get there uh, the normal way. Okay. Was I very gleeful, settled, content during the hours I passed? in yonder bare, humble schoolroom this morning and afternoon. Not to deceive myself, I must reply, no. I felt desolate to a degree. I felt, yes, idiot that I am, I felt degraded. I doubted I had taken a step which sunk instead of raising me in the scale of social existence. I was weakly dismayed at the ignorance, the poverty, the coarseness of all I heard and saw around me. But let me not hate and despise myself too much for these feelings. I know them to be wrong. That is a great step gained. I shall strive to overcome them. Tomorrow, I trust, I shall get the better of them partially. And in a few weeks, perhaps, they will be quite subdued. In a few months, it is possible. The happiness of seeing progress and a change for the better in my scholars may substitute gratification for disgust. So it's like, oh, cool, she's, like, self-aware. And then it's like, oh, but she's putting all the onus on, like, her students uh, as, like, the sign makers of her achievement and her ability to see them as people. Yeah, which is, like, still using, like, a certain classism as your yardstick, right? Like, if I can get these students to be more like me, then I will know that I'm a good person. (laughs) It's what a roller coaster. Meantime, let me ask myself one question, which is better. To have surrendered to temptation, listened to passion, made no painful effort, no struggle, but to have sunk down in the silken snare, fallen on the flowers covering it, wakened in a southern clime among the luxuries of a pleasure villa, To have been now living in France, Mr. Rochester's mistress, delirious with his love half my time, for he would, oh yes, he would have loved me well for a while. He did love me. No one will ever love me so again. I shall never more know the sweet homage given to beauty, youth, and grace. For never to any shall I seem to possess these charms. He was fond and proud of me. It is what no man besides will ever be. But where am I wandering, and what am I saying, and above all feeling? Whether it is better, I ask, to be a slave in a fool's paradise at Marseille, fevered with delusive bliss one hour, suffocating with the bitterest tears of remorse and shame the next, 
or to be a village schoolmistress, free and honest in a breezy mountain nook in the healthy heart of England. Yes, I feel now that I was right when I adhered to principle and law and scorned and crushed the insane promptings of a frenzied moment. God directed me to a correct choice. I thank his providence for the guidance. Having brought my even-tide musings to this point, I rose, went to my door, looked at the sunset of the harvest day, and at the quiet fields before my cottage, which, with the school, was distant half a mile from the village. The birds were singing their last strains. The air was mild. The dew was balm. While I looked, I thought myself happy, and was surprised to find myself ere long weeping. And why? For the doom which had left me from adhesion to my master, for him I was no more to see, for the desperate grief and fatal fury, consequences of my departure, which might now, perhaps, be dragging him from the path of right, too far to leave hope of ultimate restoration thither. At this thought, I turned my face aside from the lovely sky of Eve and lovely vale of Morton. I say, lonely, for in that bend of its visible of it visible to me, there was no building apparent save the church and the parsonage, half-hidden trees, and, quite at the extremity, the roof of Vale Hall, where the rich Mr. Oliver and his daughter lived. I hid my eyes, and I leaned my head against the stone frame of my door, but soon a slight noise near the wicket, which shut in my tiny garden from the meadow beyond it, made me look up. A dog, old Carlo, Mr. Rivers Pointer, as I saw in a moment, was pushing the gate with his nose, and St. John himself leaned upon it with folded arms, his brow knit, his gaze, grave almost to displeasure, fixed on me. I asked him to come in. No, I cannot stay. I've only brought you a little parcel my sister's left for you. I think it contains a color box, pencils, and paper. I approached to take it, a welcome gift it was. He examined my face, I thought, with austerity as I came near. The traces of tears were doubtless very visible upon it. Have you found your first day's work harder than you expected, he asked. Oh, no, on the contrary. I think in time I shall get on with my scholars very well. But perhaps your accommodations, your cottage, your furniture, have disappointed your expectations. They are in truth scanty enough, but... I interrupted. My cottage is clean and weatherproof, my furniture sufficient and commodious. All I see has made me thankful, not despondent. I am not absolutely such a fool and sensualist as to regret the absence of a carpet, a sofa, and silver plate. Besides, <laughs> five weeks ago I had nothing. I was an outcast, a beggar, a vagrant. Now I have acquaintance, a home, a business. I wonder at the goodness of God, the generosity of my friends, the bounty of my lot. I do not repine. But you feel solitude and oppression. The little house there behind you is rather dark and empty. I have hardly had time to enjoy a sense of tranquility, much less to grow impatient under one of loneliness. Very well. I hope you feel the, con the content you express. At any rate, your good sense will tell you that it is too soon yet to yield to the vacillating, vacillating fears of Lot's wife. What you had left before I saw you, of course, I do not know. But I counsel you to resist, firmly, every temptation which would incline you to look back. Pursue your present career steadily, for some months at least. It is what I mean to do, I answered. 
Sinjin continued, of course he does. It is hard work to control the workings of inclination and turn the bent of nature, but that it may be done, I know from experience. God has given us, in a measure, the power to make our own fate, and when our energies seem to demand a sustenance they cannot get, when our will strains after a path we may not follow, we need neither starve from inanition nor stand still in despair. We have but to seek another nourishment for the mind, as strong as the forbidden food it longed to taste, and perhaps purer, and to hew out for the adventurous foot a road as direct and broad as the one fortune has blocked up against us, if rougher than it. A year ago, I was myself intensely miserable, because I thought I had made a mistake in entering the ministry. Its uniform duties wearied me to death. I burned for the more active life of the world, for the more exciting toils of a literary career, for the destiny of an artist, author, orator, anything rather than that of a priest. Yes, the heart of a politician, of a soldier, of a votary of glory, a lover of renown, a luster after power, beat under my curate's surplice. I considered my life so wretched, it must be changed or I must die. After a season of darkness and struggling, light broke and relief fell. My cramped existence all at once spread out to a plan without bounds. My powers heard a call from heaven to rise, gather their full strength, spread their wings, and mount beyond kin. God had an errand for me, to bear which afar, to deliver it well, Skill and strength, courage and eloquence, the best qualifications of soldier, statement, statesman, and orator were all needed, for these all center in the good missionary. A missionary I resolved to be. From that moment, my state of mind changed. The fetters dissolved and dropped from my every faculty, leaving nothing of bondage but its galling soreness, which time only can heal. My father indeed opposed the determination, but since his death I have not a legitimate obstacle to contend with. Some affairs settled, a successor for Morton provided, an entanglement or two of feelings broken through or cut asunder, a last conflict with human weakness in which I know I shall overcome, because I have vowed that I will overcome, and I leave Europe for the East. He said this in his peculiar, subdued, yet emphatic voice looking, when he had ceased speaking, not at me, but at the setting sun, at which I looked too. Both he and I had our backs toward the path leading up the field to the wicket. We had heard no step on that grass-grown track. The water running in the vale was the one lulling sound of the hour and scene. We might well start when a great voice, sweet as a silver bell, exclaimed, Good evening, Mr. Ridgers, and good evening, old Carlo. Your dog is quicker to recognize his friends than you are, sir. He pricked his ears and wagged his tails when I was at the bottom of the field. You have your back toward me now. It was true. Though Mr. Rivers had started at the first of those musical accents, as if a thunderbolt had split a cloud over his head, he stood yet, at the close of the sentence, in the same attitude in which the speaker had surprised him. His arm resting on the gate, his face directed toward the west, he turned at last with measured deliberation. A vision, as it seemed to me, had risen at his side. There appeared within three feet of him a form clad in pure white, 
a youthful, graceful form, full yet fine in contour. And when, after bending to caress Carlo, it lifted up its head and threw back a long veil, there bloomed under his glance a face of perfect beauty. Perfect beauty is a strong expression, but I do not retrace or qualify it. As sweet features as ever the temperate clime of Albion molded, as pure hues of rose and lily as ever her humid gales and vapory skies generated and screened, justified in this instance the term. No charm was wanting. No defect was perceptible. The young girl had regular and delicate lineaments, eyes shaped and colored as we see them in lovely pictures, large and dark and full, the long and shadowy eyelash which encircles a fine eye with so soft a fascination, the penciled brow which gives such clearness, the white smooth forehead which adds such repose to the livelier beauties of tint and ray, the cheek oval, fresh and smooth, the <laughs> lips fresh too, ruddy, healthy, sweetly formed, and wow. even in gleaming teeth without flaw, the small dimpled chin, the ornament of rich, plenteous tresses, all advantages, in short, which combined, I realized the ideal of beauty were fully hers. I wondered as I looked at this fair creature. I admired her with my whole heart. Nature had surely formed her in a partial mood, and forgetting her usual stinted stepmother dole of gifts had endowed this, her darling, with a grand dame's bounty. So I don't think it's just Sinjin who's struck. <laughs> this book is gay as hell. <laughs> it's gay as hell. <laughs> I mean, it is like she like you just read almost a full third of a page describing one person's beauty and it ends with a grand dame's bounty. Like, holy fuck. OK. Yeah, it's it's a lot. And it's it, it's not a particularly like objective. Not at all. View of this woman. Right. It's it's deeply subjective. It's not the kind of like oh, she's beautiful because X, Y, Z. Like, this is falling, dripping, poetic. <laughs> uh, and, like, not to speculate, but you definitely get the sense that this author, the book itself, is describing a real person because the specificity and yet the looseness, like, that looseness that kind of assumes you've also seen her. Mm -hmm. Like, there's nothing like the color of her hair, right? Mm -mm. It's just, just like plenteous tresses. Plenteous tresses. Also, the reveal with the long veil and just like it's the sun is setting, so she's like obviously gorgeously backlit, and she like pet the dog. Like obviously, this person is a glorious creature to behold I and know. a delight to be around. Yeah, like, it's easy to be a delight to be around when you're that beautiful, you know. It's true. And she and Sinjin have something more in common. They both shook by this pretty lady. Let's see. What did Sinjin Rivers think of this <laughs> earthly angel? I naturally asked myself that question as I saw him turn to her and look at her, and, as naturally, I sought the answer to the inquiry in his countenance. 
He had already withdrawn his eye from the peri. In Persian myth, a kind of beautiful fairy is what the mm. peri is. Um, and was looking at a humble tuft of daisies which grew by the wicket. Humble tuft of daisies. Sounds like a bush. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. We got to look up language of flowers. We do. What does a humble tuft of daisies mean? A lovely evening, but late for you to be out alone, he said, as he crushed the snowy heads of the closed flowers with his foot. <laughs> Jesus, Ugh, Boys suck. Boys are terrible. This is such a boy thing to do, to, like, see a beautiful woman and then stamp on the charming tuft of daisies nearby. Also, Jane has really taken on the Rochester vibe here, where he, she refers to her as the earthly angel, the Perry, like... You know, very much like Rochester's always referring to Jane as unearthly creatures. Oh, that just sparks something for me. Like, the way she describes Sinjin is, and, and his sisters is very, like, human, right? Like, mm-hmm. he looks like a, he has a Roman-esque nose, right? He looks like a bust of someone. Um, and then this person is entering her circle, and suddenly it's all a parry, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she's back to, like... Right, describe like inhuman, um, and I think that's that feels like it's a pretty important distinction: who she sees as deeply human, referential to humans, and humans air quotes. I agree. This feels very much like anytime she uses fantastical language to describe that puts that puts us in the space of her time at Thornfield or her truest self. I am taking a moment here to look up the secret language of flowers. The meaning of the daisy flower, innocence and purity. Often associated with newborns and babies, they symbolize innocence. They convey symbols of purity, hope, and new beginnings. Mm, New beginnings. And he's just rooting them out with his toes. (laughs) Yeah. He's stamping on the innocence. Uh-oh. Well, that also gets me to like this other point where he's like, the skills of a missionary are a soldier, a statesman, and an orator. And I'm like, ooh, I think one of those, but not the other two. Yeah. A lovely evening, but late for you to be out alone, he said, as he crushed the snowy heads of the closed flowers with his foot. Oh, I only came home from sleep. <laughs> She mentioned the name of a large town some 20 miles distant. This afternoon, Papa was come, and so I put on my bonnet after tea and ran up the valley to see her. This is she, pointing to me. It is, said Sinjin. Do you think you shall like Morton, she asked of me, with a direct and naive simplicity of tone and manner, pleasing, if childlike. I hope I shall. I have many inducements to do so. Did you find your scholars as attentive as you expected? Quite. Do you like your house? Very much. Have I furnished it nicely? Very nicely indeed. And made good choice of an attendant for you in Alice Wood? You have indeed. She is teachable and handy. This, then, I thought, is Miss Oliver, the heiress favored, it seems, in the gifts of fortune as well as those of nature. Sometimes when God gives, he gives with both hands. (laughs) What happy combination of the planets presided over her birth, I wonder. (laughs) (laughs) She was not born during Mercury's retrograde. (laughs) Oh, or whatever was going on when I was born. That's not true. I'm very lucky. I'm very blessed. And I'm probably prettier than her. 
obviously. Thanks. And you have all of the contentments of nature. <laughs> uh, just the other day, someone was like, oh, whoa, are you like a Perry or something? And I was like, oh, my God, I get that all the time. Hey, Earth Angel, what's up with you? <laughs> I shall come up and help you to teach sometimes, she added. It will be a change for me to visit you now and then, and I like a change. Mr. Rivers, I've been so gay during my stay at S. Last night, or rather this morning, I was dancing till two o'clock. The somethingeth regiment are stationed there since the riots and the officers are most agreeable men in the world they put all our young knife grinders and scissor merchants to shame (laughs) (laughs) just let it hang in the air i think we can also see um jane's perspective slowly kind of peeling away from like this like (gasps) to something like oh brother Yeah, exactly. She's like, oh, no, a frivolous one. It seemed to me that Mr. St. John's upper lip protruded, and his upper lip curled a moment. Oh, his under lip protruded, and his upper lip curled a moment. His mouth certainly looked a good deal compressed, and the lower part of his face unusually stern and square, as a laughing girl gave him this information. He lifted his gaze, too, from the daisies and turned it on her. An unsmiling, a searching... A meaning gaze it was. She answered it with a second laugh, and laughter well became her youth, her roses, her dimples, her bright eyes. (laughs) She laughed with her whole face. As he stood, mute and grave, she again fell to caressing Carlo. Poor Carlo loves me, said she. He is not stern and distant to his friends, and if he could speak, he would not be silent. As she patted the dog's head, Bending with native grace before his young and austere master, I saw a glow rise to that master's face. I saw his solemn eye melt with sudden fire and flicker with resistless motion. Flushed and kindled thus, he looked nearly as beautiful for a man as she for a woman. His chest heaved as if his large heart, weary of despotic constriction, had expanded despite the will and made a vigorous bound for the attainment of liberty. But he curbed it, I think, as a resolute rider would curb a rearing steed. He responded neither by word nor movement to the gentle advances made him. Papa says you never come to see us now, continued Miss Oliver, looking up. You are quite a stranger at Vale Hall. He alone this evening, and not very well. Will you return with me and visit him? It is not a seasonable hour to intrude on Mr. Oliver, answered St. John. Not a reasonable hour, but I declare it is. It is just the hour when Papa most wants company, when the works are closed and he has no business to occupy him. Now, Mr. Rivers, do come. Why are you so very shy and so very somber? She filled up the hiatus of his silence left by a reply of her own. I forgot, she exclaimed, shaking her beautiful curled head as if shocked at herself. I am so giddy and thoughtless. Do excuse me. And it slipped my memory that you have good reasons to be indisposed for joining in my chatter. Diana and Mary have left you and more houses shut up and you are so lonely. I'm sure I pity you. Do come and see Papa. Not tonight, Miss Rosamond. Not tonight. Oh, of course her name's Rosamond, right? Rosamond. Rosamond. Which I think one? it's Rosamond in 
British English, and it would be Rosamond over here. Yeah. Rosamond. Not tonight. Not tonight, Rosamond. <laughs> Mr. Sinjin spoke almost like an automaton. Himself only knew the effort it cost him thus to refuse. Well, if you are so obstinate, I will leave you, for I dare not stay any longer. The dew begins to fall. Good evening. She held out her hand. He just touched it. Good evening. He repeated in a voice low and hollow as an echo. She turned, but in a moment returned. Are you well? She asked. Well, might she put the question. His face was blanched as her gown. Quite well, he enunciated with a bow. He left the gate. She went one way, he another. She turned twice to gaze after him. As she tripped fairy-like down the field, he, as he strode firmly across, never turned at all. And nobody said goodbye to Jane. <laughs> Literally left at the gate. This spectacle of another's suffering and sacrifices wrapped my thoughts from exclusive meditation on my own. Diana Rivers had designated her brother inexorable as death. She had not exaggerated. And that's the end of the chapter. A very cinematic chapter of someone else's temptation, suffering, and longing. Yeah, what a charming aside. I agree wholeheartedly. Like, that whole image of, like, his chest heaving, like, his heart is trying to escape and go after Miss Rosamond Oliver, and then he ruthlessly curbs it. I was like, oh, kind of feels like that weird discussion that Rochester had about his non-apology, where he's like, that string that's attached to you, and, like, I want your heart out of your cage. Yeah. I feel like maybe... Rosamond is Mr. Rochester, and once again, I feel like Sinjin is Jane. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think this is giving her a little helpful perspective on the situation. Although I think it's fair to say that Rosamond doesn't have yeah. a skeleton in her dad's house. What if her dad is a skeleton? What if it's like a reverse Ed Gein, a gender-swapped Ugh. Ed Gein situation? I mean, that would be super cool. I would read that fanfic. Any other thoughts on this? Uh, other than to mention that you did really well reading in the present, but I do want to say that we are in the present tense yeah. where that's a change in what's been happening. We've been in the past tense for a while. It's her flight from Thornfield is entirely in the present. Um, and so to have that continue just as remains a strange and marked change, her weird noblesse oblige classist discussion of othering. <laughs> um, but yeah, you really handled the present tense really well because it's like a it's a hard tense the way that she writes in it. It's a weird tense, whatever it is. And the other thing that this chapter, because it is such, you know, ultimately like a charming aside, reminds me that this is like a Victorian novel and thus like the references and the illusions are very specific. And so like this is, you know, a book you can read over and over again, but like also something that's kind of begging for close readings because, mm -hmm. right, you can have your secret language of flowers nearby, you can have your Bible, you can have Dante, I would think comes up a lot. Like, it's just an era of writing that is so referential. And it reminds me, speaking of like 
the queerness of Jane Eyre. It, it's reminding me of when we read Gaywick. <laughs> mm. And, uh, or like even watching a John Waters movie where it's like, really full and rich and like densely packed with specific references and so there's just so many this chapter is reminding me that there's so many other ways to read this um Mm -hmm. rather than out loud on a podcast to your friend (laughs) but um that there's like anytime you like feel a tingle from a detail it's worthwhile to like look into it right because she comes in with this like the patch of daisies tells us so much about who this person is and Sinjin's reaction to stamp on them tells us everything about Sinjin, right? Mm-hmm. Chef's kiss. It is a chef's kiss of an aside. And the other thing that I really love about this is that it takes the time to humanize but also reaffirm how a store and ultimately like not good Sinjin is like as a potential suitor or choice for Jane even though he's the most like her he does the things that she does she ultimately shows us why that's like not workable Mm -hmm. why like the two of them together like would be too much even as he's like incredibly perceptive of her in similar ways as Rochester when he's like he can see that she's been crying and he's like asks her leading questions about her comfort and like her day and is like trying to pull it out of her and then like when she like won't actually confide in him he's like well I hope you are as content as you say you are let me tell you what I think you're feeling through a soliloquy about me yeah (laughs) which is like such a Rochester move yeah I I also find that like the idea of writers can only ever write about what it's like to be a writer is kind of coming Mm -hmm. through in this because I do think that like when we are when it is made clear in this chapter that Sinjin officially sucks is when he starts talking about how he feels like he gave up all of his dreams and now he's found like a dream compromise in being Mm -hmm. a missionary and he's going to put all of that creative energy into being a missionary and the book seems to think that's stupid and dumb right like I that's not just me reading into it because you also read it into it right yeah Um, and you know someone who someone like Charlotte Bronte is going to be the kind of person who's like, no, you should do it. Like, the only <laughs> worthwhile thing is, like, if you're a writer, to write, you know. Uh, and it, 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 I feel like I have yet to find a book that really celebrates people who feel the same passion that artists feel, but for other things, like, perhaps for, like, being a mother or even, you know, fixing up old cars, right? Like, they don't really seem to understand that or, like, the idea mm-hmm. that, like, maybe you actually have a dream to, like, live in the suburbs. Like, that's a real and legitimate desire um, that many people have. Um, and so that reminds me of Richard Iowade's book about woman on top, the Gwyneth Paltrow movie about being a flight attendant. And one of the mm. reasons he's doing this deep dive is he was, like, as I was watching this, like, movie, I realized, like, Hollywood cannot tell a story. It's that thing about like writers always write about writers writing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he was like, and that's what struck me about it. And that's what's striking me about Jane Eyre. I think that's exactly right. That 
I mean, I think obviously the idea of adapting a passion to a career that will sustain, feed, and keep you is like a practical and smart way to marshal your energies. I don't love that he thinks that being a missionary in whatever the quote-unquote East means in this context requires being a soldier and a statesman. I think there's like a very strong whiff of bad there. Obviously, colonialism and genocide being like the underpinnings of those two things. Yeah. Um, But it's not those two things that Jane is objecting to. It's that he's bending his dreams into a practicality. Yeah. Or not Jane so much as like, yes, Jane, but like the text itself is like. Yeah, absolutely. There are so many nuances in there that are telling us like, look at this dumbass, you know? Yeah. And I think part of it is also the fact that the book is clearly thinking of Jane so reverently and with a great deal of complexity when she's talking about, you know, feigning to teach these peasant children, right? (laughs) Whereas like with Sinjin, the book really wants you to know that he's doing it for his own glory Mm -hmm. and that he's making like a meaningless sacrifice, you know? Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, Yeah, this book is a strange treasure trove and like continues to be like what is old is new again you know it's like endlessly speaking to this moment from 1841 which is both distressing and somehow comforting perfect yeah yeah i'm not sure (laughs) on that bombshell (laughs) loosen your jeans but never your heirs (laughs) (laughs) 